The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, um, turn to um, Romans, no, not Romans, turn to <laughs> Revelation. If you want to turn to Romans, that's fine too, but Revelation chapter 10. And while you're turning there, let me say one quick thing about the book of the month. Um, the book of the month is Indwelling Sin and Believers, which is not like the the most cheerful title, um, it's not like your best life now. It's indwelling sin in believers. And it's written by John Owen. And this is uh, an abridged and um, basically easy to read version. And uh, John Owen wrote voluminously. And he wrote in, uh, in volume six, the trilogy of indwelling sin and temptation and the mortification of sin. And by the way, that's only half of volume six. The other half is an exposition of Psalm 130, verse four, 300 pages of exposition on one verse. Anyway, Owen's work is is really matchless. And I want to say this without any, this, there's no exaggeration. If you want to grow in your understanding of what's going on inside of your own heart and how to deal with it, There is no better physician for the soul than John Owen. And so I would urge you um, to pick this up. Next month, the book of the month will be on the mortification of sin, which is the other part. Um, And so anyway, I wanted to make that, that plug. Owen is actually one of those books that I will read um, with some regularity just because um, I don't think I've ever read a human author that I could say, um, that guy sees my mail every day. And, um, and God uses that. All right, so we're in Revelation chapter 10, and we're going to read the whole chapter. It's only 11 verses. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud and the rainbow, was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer." But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me saying, go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. We get to uh, another transitional point in the book of Revelation. So chapters 10 and 11 fall between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, okay? So that, by the way, that's important. You had the sixth trumpet, now you have chapters 10 and 11 that form an interlude or parenthesis, if you like, between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Why is that important? Well, because it parallels the fact that between the sixth and seventh seals, there was also an interlude. Revelation chapter 7 
And so if you remember in Revelation chapter 7, you had the ceiling of the 144,000, right? And so that interlude was, was a, um, a passage that dealt with the protection of God's people. And so here, the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets does something, I think, that is very similar, all right? So in Revelation 10, we get this mighty angel, and he, he commissions, or if you will, recommissions John in a way that is similar to the way Ezekiel was commissioned. And it then introduces, so, so, so think of it this way, chapter 10 sets up the vision of chapter 11, all right? Chapter 10 and 11 are a unit, obviously, but in a sense, chapter 10 is now going to introduce us to two scenes in chapter 11, namely the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses. Now, I really can't wait to get to chapter 11 because that's, that's really where you can see, uh, again, where, where the different views kind of are, are so uh, disparate. And so Revelation 10 and 11 um, end up, in, in a sense, sort of connecting the two halves of Revelation. They, they sort of interlock the first part and then the second part. And so from one angle, as we look at Revelation 10 and 11, it is like chapter 7 in that what we're going to see is that the church endures as a witness to the gospel in a hostile world. And it is by virtue of that endurance and their testimony that judgment on the whole world is warranted. So both of those things fit together, salvation and judgment. You, have you ever noticed that when you're reading your Bible? Salvation and judgment go hand in hand. So greatest act of salvation ever, the cross. But it was also an act of profound judgment. The exodus. The Old Testament redemption, the salvation of Israel out of Egypt, and the exodus was also a judgment on Egypt. By the way, you could, you could go on and on and on, example after example of how all of, this, all of this works together. And so the message for us in 10 and 11 is that the church is called to maintain a gospel witness even in the midst of hostility, and it is through enduring in that witness that God brings both salvation and judgment. All right. So, verses 1 and 2, notice this. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. Now, what, did anybody go, wow? Read that description of that angel. Or did you just go, uh-huh. This angel looks remarkably like the Son of God. <laughs> All right? There's absolutely no doubt. So this angel, by the way, is, let's just put it this way, no ordinary angel, okay? As if there was ordinary angels. This angel is extraordinary. And this angel has, um, let's just say, divine attributes used to describe this angel and those attributes so far in the book of Revelation have only been used to describe God and Christ, all right? So I, I want to say that I think, I'm, I, I think I'm in the minority on this. Most commentators that I read today see this angel as Christ, all right? Um, uh, Greg Beale, Doug Kelly, a whole host, um, uh, William Hendrickson, they all, and, and there are reasons, I mean, strong reasons. 
And so, for instance, Doug Kelly, in about four pages, lays out six compelling reasons why this angel must be Christ. And notice I said compelling reasons. I can, I can lay aside uncompelling reasons, right? I can, I can think critically in a way to go, okay, that, that really, these are six compelling reasons, all right? But I want to say, <clears throat> I have three reservations about saying that this angel is Christ himself, all right? First reason, right there in the text. And I saw what? Another angel. Okay? Now, whatever we're going to say about this angel, keep in mind he is still classified as another angel. All right? To me, I'm thinking, okay, I don't know. I mean... Does Jesus appear in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord? Yeah, absolutely. But here's the thing, is that when Jesus appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, it's an appearance. Okay, So, so there's a difference. This would be my second uh, reservation. There's a difference between appearing as an angel and being an angel, right? So in the Old Testament, when God appears, we call that a theophany, an appearance of God. The way in which God appears is not God himself, right? You understand what I'm saying? So it's an appearance. Um, it's, it's an accommodation. All right? Yeah, for us. When Christ appears in the Old Testament, so if God, when God appears in the Old Testament, it's a theophany, generally speaking. When Christ appears, it's Christophany. Now, I can't prove this, but I would be pretty much willing to um, uh, bet a dollar that every theophany in the Old Testament is technically a Christophany, okay? Now, the problem is, is that Christ appears as the angel of the Lord. That doesn't mean he's really an angel. Here, guess what this is? This is really an angel, all right? So, third reason why I have grave reservations about... (laughs) By the way, it's really hard to have grave reservations when all of the commentators that you really look up to, admire, and learn from all are saying something different. But I would also say that there's something in the book of Hebrews that, in a sense, precludes us from seeing Jesus as an angel. And that is, in in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 to 14... Jesus is actually superior to all the angels and has been given a better name than all of the angels. Why? Because he is the son of God. Hebrews 1 demonstrates not only the superiority of Christ to the angels as son, but also superiority to the angels because he's God. If we had time, we'd take a look. And I, and I would just say, read through Hebrews 1 carefully. So one time, um, this is just a footnote. I was doing a prison ministry when I was in Portland. And I was uh, at the, uh, in the drug and alcohol unit at uh, Columbia River Correctional Institution. And there was a guy there who was, um, he was kind of like a Jehovah's Witness. But his father-in-law had broken off from the Jehovah's Witnesses in order to be the true Jehovah's Witness. Okay? Got me? Now, what did Jehovah's Witnesses believe about Jesus? 
He's Michael the archangel. Greatest of all of God's created beings. Okay? So I'm teaching through the book of Hebrews. And I go through, and I don't know what this guy's background is. And I say, it is impossible for Jesus to be an angel because he's better than the angels. He made the angels, and the angels worship him. Okay? By the way, that's all in Hebrews 1. And this guy comes up, and he is so mad at me, he can't see straight. It's always a little unsettling, isn't it, Charlie, when you make somebody in prison angry at you because of something that you've taught. And um, so I tried talking to him and showing him the text, and he was so... He was so flustered and he went back. He came back the next week and he sat in the back, didn't say a word. And then after the study, he came up and he said, you know, I just got to tell you something. I've been thinking about this all week. And if I actually believed what you said about Jesus, my father-in-law would disown me and my wife would divorce me. I said, I don't want to, you know, minimize the cost, but... There's always a cost to truly following Jesus. Next week, he comes, sits in the back all quiet, comes up, and he looks at me, and he's got this slight grin on his face, and he says, thank you for ruining my life. <laughs> he said, Hebrews 1 leaves no doubt Jesus is not Michael the archangel. He's the son of God, right? So to me, I get to Hebrews 1 and I'm thinking to myself, there is a fundamental difference between Jesus appearing as the angel of the Lord and then actually saying he is an angel, right? So, and and I'm not saying these other guys say that he is an angel, but they're saying he's this angel. So I have grave reservations. So as we're going to see, there's a number of descriptions about this angel. And here's, here's, my, here's my, my, my mild offering to you. Perhaps the, the close identifications with deity in the descriptions reflect that this angel is one of the mighty archangels who's dispatched directly from the throne of God. And since he is so closely identified with and so closely represents the one who sends him, he takes on, as it were, the semblance of the one who sends him. To me, that's actually a little more plausible. Now, here's the angel comes down out of heaven. And guess what? Everything that we're about to read, you can actually read back in Exodus chapter 19. (laughs) Basically, all of these, all of these details that we're going to see appear in the theophany of Exodus 19, where God comes down on Sinai. All right. And then you end up having all of this, um, you know, clouds and rainbows and all this kind of stuff. So he's clothed with a cloud. Well, and I know I'm not doing my position any favors, but guess who was repeatedly said to be clothed in a cloud, wrapped in a cloud, riding on the clouds as a chariot? The Lord, uh, well, God himself in in the Psalms, right? Guess who actually is, um, uh, in a cloud in Daniel seven thirteen, the Messiah. And then uh, chapter 1, there's this cloud associated with Jesus. And then in chapter 14, there's a cloud that Jesus is on in judgment. So I know that makes it sound like I'm trying to argue that this is Christ, but I'm not. Uh, <laughs> and then there's a rainbow over his head. Now, the rainbow over his head, of course, goes back to Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28. Guess who the rainbow is over? Well, God himself, right? And then, of course, Revelation 4, 3, the th- one seated on the throne, there's a rainbow, right? And that's God himself. And then... His face is like the sun. Well, we've already had that back in Revelation 1.16 where it says Jesus' face shine like the sun. 
By the way, that's not the only place. Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17 and 2. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he is, uh, he is clothed in this, in this gleaming bright white garment and his face shines like the sun. I may talk myself out of my position by the time we're done. His feet is pillars of fire. <laughs> I think that you're, it's, it's a fairly inescapable connection to go back to chapter one to see the feet of the son of God uh, burning like burnished bronze, right? Um, but pillars of fire. That sound familiar to you? Book of Exodus. Pillar of cloud and fire to actually lead the people of Israel in the wilderness. And so the pillar of, pillar of cloud appears first in Exodus 13. And then, and here's something else that's really absolutely interesting. And again, contrary to my view, um, you have a number of passages in Exodus where God promises his presence with his people and oftentimes in connection with him being present with them in the wilderness and that presence is mediated through the angel that he sends, which is in all likelihood the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, here's, here's the the, the point, though, in the text, and that is that God's presence with, with Israel in the wilderness is the same as his presence with us in our wilderness. So, so whether we, we quibble over the, the actual identity of the angel here, the angel is the mediator of God's divine presence. Okay. And it is, it is that very picture of a God who is present, present with his people at Sinai and then in the wilderness that then echoes for us that we too, by the way, book of Hebrews, guess what? Hebrews chapters three and four, the church is the wandering wilderness people of God. That's us. What are we doing? We're, we're entering into the rest, but we're not there yet. So what does that mean? It means that we actually are in a spiritual wilderness ourselves. And so here's the picture is, is, and again, remember what the interlude is doing. It's preparing the people of God for her mission on earth. And, and it is as if God himself is reminding us, listen, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of enemies, in the midst of opposition and hostility, I am with you just as sure as the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire were with the children of Israel. It's it really is sort of a remarkable thing. So if you've ever been to Community Bible Church in Vallejo. Let me just say, so Chad can testify to this, right? Vallejo is not like the best city in California, all right? In fact, when I got up, I preached the first sermon and and then the last sermon. And I looked over to the pastor, Phil Foley, and I said, you know, I said, I've been here a number of times over the years. I never noticed this before. I'm driving down Tennessee Boulevard. And there's a sign, and it says, tourist information, straight ahead. All these years, growing up in Sacramento, I never realized Vallejo was a tourist destination. (laughs) The immediate area right around the church is scary. Bad neighborhood, right, Chad? Like, 
you you don't want to wander around in the daylight, let alone in the, in the dark. And here's this here's this amazing thing. Right in the midst of this darkness, you have this big, massive church. Originally, the first building was used to be a Safeway. Okay. And they turned the Safeway into a church. Then they built this second building on the property. And there is, there is this wonderful sense that these are God's people. And God is right here. Right in the midst of the worst neighborhood you could imagine. That's what God does for his people. And so, just as a reminder to us, as things get worse, we need to remember that the darker it gets, the brighter the pillar of fire shines. And so here is God with his people. He's come down, as it were. Now, this angel is in his right hand, has this opened, it's already opened, little scroll. Not the same word as the scroll in chapter 5. That was just biblion. This is uh, uh, bibliodarion, right? Is that what it was? Anyway, it's little scroll. It's diminutive form. So, so here he's got this little scroll, and it's already open. Now, there's similarities and dissimilarities, right? One is, this, there's a scroll in somebody's right hand, right? So that's a similarity. But there are some dissimilarities. The scroll in Revelation 5 is sealed. This one is already opened. The scroll in Revelation 5 is held by the Father on the throne. Revelation 10, the scroll is held by this angel, Revelation 5, the scroll is taken by whom? By the Lamb. Here, it's taken by John. Revelation 5, what happens when the Lamb takes the scroll from the hand of him who sits on the throne? This, this worship results. There's actually a chain reaction of worship. Here, John takes it, and he's just said, told, eat it. All right? Now... What is this little scroll? Um, <laughs> anybody ever heard of Occam's razor? The principle of parsimony? Okay, okay. so this is, this is a, a relevant to the medical field, isn't it, Craig? Okay, so Occam's razor or the principle of parsimony is that the simplest answer is usually the right one. That's sort of an oversimplification, but I think William of Ockham would be pleased with it. Now, the simplest explanation of what the little scroll is, is that it's simply the content of what's going to happen in 11 through 16. That seems to be the simplest explanation. Now, um, you do understand that the reason why Revelation is the, uh, is the uh, let's just say, the soil for craziness is because uh, you don't have explicitly what is, what is on the scroll. So it leads to wild imagination. What's even better is when John's told, stop writing, don't write this down, and nobody knows what it is, and then you can really have some fun. But... Here you have this little scroll, and, and, and notice, so here's this, here's this angel. He's got the scroll in his right hand. He's come down out of heaven, awesome, awesome majestic being, and he comes down, and he, he plants his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth. Earth and sea. Ever see those two coupled together in the Bible? <laughs> if you haven't, it's... The only explanation could be that you've not read a Bible. It's everywhere, right? It's in poetic language all the time, earth and sea. So there's a figure of speech. It's called a merism, which takes basically the two 
uh, two extremes to basically be a comprehensive term. So a Marism would be heaven and earth, or a Marism would be head to toe, right? Um, a non-biblical Marism would be stem to stern, right? So the idea is, is, is comprehensive. So it could be that the angel comes and um, the picture is, is that he's actually standing uh, over the entire created world. Um, now, of course, set feet does perhaps have a very strong implication of sovereign control. So we're going to see in chapter 13, for instance, there's going to be a beast that comes from the sea and a beast that comes up from the earth. Okay, both in in Revelation 13. It could be that there's a little bit of anticipation of the idea that even heaven itself is still sovereign over the very places from whence the beasts will arise. Very possible. Could also be that this angel who has the scroll and is preparing for uh, the, the, the revelation of chapter 11, that earth and sea simply has the idea that the message that he is bringing is for the whole world. In biblical symbolism, the land... By the way, ha-eretz in Hebrew is both you can say land or earth. It's the same, same term. Um, in fact, the, the paper in Jerusalem to this day is called ha-eretz, the land. So in biblical symbolism, the land is actually connected with the nation Israel. They're the people of the land. Not lands, plural, or islands, plural, but the land, the earth. The sea is symbolic of what? By the way, symbolic of a lot. Symbolic of wickedness. Chaos. Ariel hates it when I talk like this. She loves the sea, and I'm like, there's not going to be a sea in the new, new earth. (laughs) <laughs> and um, so <laughs> anyway, sea is also symbol for the Gentile nations because of the chaos and the tumult and the uproar that's created. Okay, and so it could be that the message that is about to be brought is a message for the whole world, Jew and Gentile. Okay, so whatever the, whatever the case may be. The next thing that happens in verse 3 is, and he, so the angel, cries out with a loud voice. Notice how many times, just look it up in a concordance sometimes. How many times is the word loud used in Revelation, right? Loud voice as when a lion roars. Hence, by the way, one more argument for the angel being Christ, all right? Um, and when he cried out, so here's his, his loud voice and his voice is so loud. It says when a lion roars, so like there's reverberation, right? And, and when that happens, when he cried out, seven peals of thunder uttered their voice. Now, majestic. Loud, frightening. So the voices are the voice of the angel uh, roaring like a lion, the voices of the, of the seven peals of thunder, loud, authoritative, heavenly. Now, notice, just look over in, uh, in Psalm 29 real quick. This sort of struck me today as interesting. Psalm 29, 
Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness in Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare and everything in his temple says glory. How many times is voice used there? Seven. Seven. The glory of God thunders. So I suggest to you that this, the the voice of the seven thunders could very well be just simply a way to express the sevenfold, that is the perfect or full voice of God himself. It's awesome. And so the, 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 the thunders have this loud cry, this voice, and I would just remind you also that in John chapter 12, as Jesus is talking about the prince of this ruler is about to be overthrown, remember, as he's talking, um, God speaks regarding his son. Jesus had said, Father, glorify your name. And then God responds and he says, uh, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. And you know what everybody thought they heard? Thunder. Thunder. Thunder was a precursor to the judgment that was about to be brought on the prince of this world. So this is, this is an awesome scene, and, and uh, it was interesting. We were talking in, in Greek yesterday, and I said, it, maybe just the sound instead of voice, uh, you know, in, so instead of like the thunder saying something, and then all of a sudden we get to this next part, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, um, or, or John hears the seven thunders speak, and then he was about to write. So the seven thunders had to be something intelligible that John was about to write down. God had spoken from heaven, and he spoke in a way that there is John, and he's about to write. By the way, John's just doing his duty. He'd been commissioned to write back in chapter 1 and verse 11, and so there's John, he's about to write. By, by the way, this, this actually gives us a picture maybe of what, what these uh, apocalyptic visions were like. Here's John and he, and he sees and he hears and, and, and then he writes. And so he's about to write. And right before he, he writes, he hears another voice saying, seal what the seven thunders said and do not write them. It's interesting, right? Think about Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal the words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And so Daniel's told to seal up the book. But when you get to Revelation, Revelation is not a a sealing or a concealing of, of Christ. It's a revealing. It's revelation. It's disclosure. It's an, in fact, as we argued back in chapter one, what is the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is unsealing the stuff that God told Daniel to seal. And so then you get this uh, and, and seal up with the thunder just said. Now let me just say, what that means is that nobody knows what the thunder said except John. And he was told not to say anything. All right, so don't go out and buy a book that says it's telling you what the thunder said. All right, 
So a lot of people uh, wonder, like, what, why is John being told to seal up what the seven thunders just said? And, and, and uh, so I'm going to appeal to uh, Occam's razor once again. It could be as simple as this. This is Greg Beal. The thunder judgments, okay, rightfully called, the thunder judgments are not revealed here, perhaps because they're so repetitive of the previous two synchronous sevenfold cycles, that is the, the uh, seals and the trumpets, that they reveal nothing radically new. Okay? I mean, John could have ended up going in and doing an entire another cycle of seven thunder judgments, and they end up being very much the same. But here's, here's the, the reality is that they are judgments, and we're just simply not explicitly told what they are. You can speculate all you want as to why we're not told what they are, but we really don't know. Then we get the mighty angel again. So, so again, the, the scene is, is, is remarkable, right? Seal up what the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. Then the angel, now by the way, every time John talks about this angel, he's going to say, the, you know, the, the, the one that's standing on earth and sea. Just in case you might get him confused with some other, like, puny or angel, all right? The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. He's about to take an oath. And then, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and earth and the things in it and sea and the things in it. And here's what he swore. There will be no more delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. Just as he preached it to his servants, the prophets. That's a remarkable scene. By the way, very similar scene to uh, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7. You have a very similar uh, picture of of, uh, raising your hand, taking an oath to the one who lives forever and ever in Deuteronomy 32. And here is this angel who, so there's something that is, uh, that's weighty. So he is about to basically swear regarding the testimony he's about to give. So what are the chances that it's true? Well, it's 100%. He's come down from heaven, and now he's going to swear by the one who lives forever and ever. That is the eternal God who made absolutely everything. That is the creator of the ends of the earth. By the way, we don't have time to go into it, but you do understand that swearing, not cussing, But swearing was a part of Israel's worship that they were commanded to do. By the time Jesus comes along, the Jews had so distorted it, turning it into loopholes so that you could tell untruths. But swearing by God's name in the form of an oath or a vow was an act of worship. And so here is this, this angel who, who, I mean, you, you have to admit, it, it really, it's striking. He raises his hand and swears by God who lives forever and he created everything. No more delay. Well, what's no more delay? Well, back in chapter 6 and the fifth seal, the souls under the altar are told to rest for a little while longer. Well, now it's all done. It's all done. And so no more delay, no more delay. What does that mean in the days of the seventh angel who is about to trumpet, right? What's going to happen? The mystery of God will be complete. Okay. So mystery of God, I again, 
probably, in the Bible, mystery is not um, a whodunit. Mystery is not an Agatha Christie novel. Mystery is not Sherlock Holmes. Mystery is something that requires revelation in order to understand. A mystery is concealed until it is revealed, and it's not figured out by human beings, it's revealed by God. And so, you have, do you have mystery in the New Testament? And the answer is yes. Here's a mystery in the New Testament, that Jew and Gentile actually make up one new man. That's a mystery. That is, it wasn't revealed clearly in the old, it's revealed now, right? So there's things like that. And so here, the idea is, is that the revealed purpose of God, I think the idea is in, his, in the suffering of his people and the judgment of the world is about to be complete. In other words, there's a termination point to the suffering of God's people and that termination point is the judgment of the world. Again, God's saving purposes and his judgment are never isolated from each other. And then you have this great, this great phrase. Just as he preached to his servants, the prophets. What prophets are those? I take those to be Old Testament prophets. That This was revealed too. And now it's about to be consummated. Right? So remember uh, Amos 3, 7, God doesn't do anything unless he actually reveals it to his servants, the prophets first. Right? So the coming of salvation and, and judgment was announced by God in the Old Testament, but its fulfillment is going to take place in this church age. And so here's this, here's this pattern that finds its consummation. There is, for God's people, there is, there is always persecution and suffering and then salvation and resurrection. That's the pattern. Was Israel resurrected? Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Israel was resurrected in a sense a number of times. Ezekiel 37 the valley of dead bones is the resurrection of Israel. Israel coming out of exile back into the land is another resurrection. And so there is this, there is this, this, this picture of, of persecution, or should we put it like this? Exile, persecution, suffering, death, resurrection. So Charlie and I have been talking about redemptive historical themes in Scripture. This is one of them. The church actually will do the same thing. How do we know the church will do the same thing? What's going to happen to the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11? They're going to testify, and then they're going to be martyred, and then they're going to be raised. Same pattern. Now, here is this, this, this glorious picture. And, and what I want to point out very quickly is that notice this parallels the sixth and seventh seal in that everything is finished. So remember, I've been saying all along, the, uh, the seals parallel the trumpets, the trumpets parallel the bowls, and the end of each cycle is the end of the age in judgment. Well, here it is. The mystery of God is completed. Well, we're not going to have time to finish this. I thought we would. Let me just say real quick. So he, here's John's commission. <laughs> Verse 8. So then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. You remember that angel, right? <laughs> That like awesome, majestic, really powerful uh, rainbow on his head, face like the sun angel, that one. <laughs> and um, I have to say that I think the, the commission here, go take the book out of his hand. Seems like a daunting commission to me. 
Don't you think? I mean, you could have said, uh, uh, stay at a safe distance, fall on your face, beg for him to roll the scroll to you. No, just go right up and just take it right out of his hand. So here's the, here's the, the, the great part is that John goes up to the angel and says, give me the little scroll. Now, I have to say, on the one hand, this is quite a bit less dramatic than what happens in chapter five. All right? Quite a bit less dramatic. But you have to really admire John and his boldness here. And the only thing that could account for his boldness is that he just heard a voice from heaven, that voice that had already spoken to him, and he'd rather go and face the angel than turn around and tell the voice, uh, nah. <laughs> so the angel then, he says to me, uh, so take it. Now, that's not like a challenge, right? Go take it if you can. He says, take it and devour it. <laughs> and so the scrolls open and the angel says, go ahead, take it. And then, and, and he doesn't just say eat it. He uses an intensified form of eat that often means the idea of to devour something. And notice the inversion. It's going to be bitter in your stomach, but in your mouth it'll be sweet as honey. And here you have John's prophetic vision, as it were, that, or prophetic commission that parallels the very same commission as Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Ezekiel's told the very same thing. Take the scroll, eat it. It'll be sweet in your mouth, bitter in your stomach. For Ezekiel, by the way, the same for Jeremiah, Jeremiah 15, same thing. The idea was that the, the bitterness would be caused by the rebellion of the house of Israel for not obeying the words of the Lord. And so John takes the book and he devours it. And notice the way that the order gets put right now. And in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. I mean, how many many times do you think that we read that the word of God is sweet like honey, sweet to our taste, right? You have it a number of times, uh, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, multiple times. Um, you have the prophets, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, who do the same thing. They eat it, and, and, and it's sweet to their taste. And so the, the sweetness is God's word. In a sense, the, the sweetness is is really, in a sense, the gospel itself. But remember, the gospel always has implications for those who will not believe it. And so the sweetness of the gospel also has, as it were, a bitterness. Now, people talk about the bitterness in a couple different ways. Um, when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. So it could be in a reference to when that gospel is proclaimed, there's always persecution and suffering that comes to God's people. Okay. So like not so much for us, but if you're in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan or Afghanistan and you share the sweetness of the gospel, You'll suffer the bitterness of persecution. Very, very possible that's what's in view. In fact, William Hendrickson says, the scrolls, the word of God, is gospel in which the mystery of salvation is set forth. That gospel is in itself glorious and sweet, but its proclamation is always followed by bitter persecution. It could also be, and and there's no reason I think why it couldn't be both, the idea of the bitterness could be the judgments of God against the impenitent and unbelieving world. And it's bitter, right? 
There, there's nobody in their right mind that should actually be uh, like gladly happy that God is going to judge people. You can rejoice in the judgment of God in that it is a reflection of his glory, but there ought to be a bitterness in our hearts and our minds of those who suffer the judgment. There's something incredibly perverse and wrong with you if you get happy about God damning somebody to eternal punishment forever. Jesus, by the way, in, in Luke 19, it just said to, to um, uh, said over Jerusalem, if you had known the time of your visitation, right, you would have been ready. And he draws near to Jerusalem, and as he, as he comes up to the city, He sees it, and he weeps over it. He knows what's in store for their rejection of him. And so Leon Morris says, the true preacher of God's word will faithfully proclaim the denunciations of the wicked it contains, but he does not do this with a fierce glee. The more his heart is filled with the love of God, the more certain it is that the telling forth of woes will be a bitter experience. And so we're going to stop there. We'll pick up the last verse as we go into chapter 11 next week. Let me just say one one thing and we'll expand a little bit next week. You and I have the privilege to tell people about the sweetness of the gospel. And frankly, this is something that I could do way better than I do. What is it that is a catalyst for us to tell people about God's salvation in Christ. In a sense, we have it right here. Tasting the sweetness of the gospel ourselves. Do you know who the best witnesses are for Jesus? Those who are just so profoundly grateful for everything that he's done for them that they cannot help but to speak to others on his behalf. And then there's the bitterness. Knowing that those who don't believe will be cast out of God's presence forever. In a real sense, the lost who reject Christ God, as it were, will give them their ultimate desire, which will be their ultimate hell. And that, too, should be a catalyst to us. The people that we know, people that we love, may be among those cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But it's both things that serve as a motivation, is it not? It's not just the bitterness of mourning over judgment. It's the sweetness of the gospel. The sweeter the gospel is to us, the more we'll tell people about it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. Lord, what a, what a book for our times. And we pray, Father, even tonight that you would remind us that
following Jesus isn't just about finding our comfort zone and nestling into the joy of salvation, Lord, but it, it, it is about telling others. And we pray that you would motivate us with the right reasons to tell others about Jesus. Father, we pray that um, even as our brother prayed a little earlier, the fear of man is a snare. Help us not to be afraid of what others think. Surely there will be bad reactions to us. But if they hated Jesus, why would we think anything less for ourselves? And so we pray that you'd help us, Lord. Help us to be those missionaries and evangelists who share the good news with others. Receive our thanks tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.